Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. My question is, Chris, how much talent does it take to mind somebody's money and put it in a safe and fucking lend the rest of it out? Not much. It's one of the ways in which the system is rigged. There is no justification for ordinary, mainstream, high street bankers to be multimillionaires. Absolutely not. Hello there. Well, we got a massive response to the first part of my chat with economist Chris Johns last week. I sometimes ask an expert to talk to me like I'm a two-year-old um, by way of trying to understand a complex issue. That's exactly what I asked Chris to do in this conversation. In part one, we talked about who or what is the markets um, and why do they seem to exert so much control over all of us? How did the UK become such a basket case so quickly? And why do economists get paid so much to make predictions that 90% of the time turn out to be so wrong. But in this episode, we play to you part two of our chat. And I ask uh, Chris if Sinn Féin can really solve the housing crisis, why artificial intelligence has the potential to be so incredibly dangerous, and if bankers are paid far, far too much money. Chris, as ever, has plenty to say. This is one of the great human lies that people tell themselves. I embrace change. Bring it on. Absolute. BS. We're hardwired to resist change, and the structures throughout sclerotic organisations are there to prevent change from happening. There are a few billionaires at the top of all of these different companies that we can all name, and the rest of us, we happily use these devices and these tools, but we haven't shared in the monetary gains from them. And an awful lot of people have lost their more traditional jobs as a result of this technological progress. I worry that AI is going to put all that on steroids. I see the plan, yes. So you're saying the housing problem is a consequence of economic success. Sinn Féin will come into power. Generate economic failure. Generate economic failure and we will solve the housing problem. Brilliant, isn't it? Isn't it brilliant? Let's say I have an 18 billion euro budget surplus. Would you put that money away for a rainy day fund or would you spend that on 100 million packets of Maltesers and 50 million golly bars. That's a tough one, Pascal. That's all coming up very shortly, but I got tons of emails in from you over the last few days about part one. Um, So many to mention. Uh, Mark, everything Chris John says makes sense. Must be one of the most knowledgeable podcasters around. Brilliant podcast by two remarkable individuals. Unless there was two Chris Johns, that couldn't have been. Oh, he must have been me as well. No, hardly. John and Clonmel, I thoroughly enjoyed your first interview with Chris Mario, and I'm so looking forward to your second instalment with a great man. There are four types of men in this world. One, the man who knows and knows that he knows. He is wise, so consult him. Two, the man who knows. He doesn't know that he knows. Help him not forget what he knows. Three, the man who knows not and knows that he knows not. Teach him. Four, Finally, there is the man who knows not, but pretends that he knows. He is a fool, so avoid him. I now confer the savant and genius Chris as falling under point number one. He is unequivocally the man who knows and knows that he knows. He is wise, so consult him. And thanks for all your emails um, this week. Uh, I had loads of emails, text messages and Instagrams kind of based around the same thing. People really enjoyed Chris's contribution. Keep them coming. To mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all and get back to 95% of them and I will endeavour to get back to some of the people that uh, contacted me this week. But please take two seconds of your time also to press follow on your podcast app. And if you can't do that, just tell one other person 
that you like the Mario Rosenstock podcast. It's such a huge help to us when it comes to growing the show and bringing more people like you into the fold. I'd be very grateful. Thanks very much. And this week in comedy, well, it can only really be about one thing. Well, actually, there was more than one thing. There was loads of things. But I picked the coronation. And that's what all my podcasting friends have been talking about this week, including, would you believe, Eamon Dunphy on The Stand. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, it's a momentous time in England, of course, a country I love and lived in for many years with the coronation of King Charles. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of the great royal watchers of modern times, a man whose life has spanned three British monarchs in all. Um, that is the great uh, Diane of Royal Correspondence, John Giles. John? Oh, yeah, Eamon. John, this is an enormous task facing King Charles, is it not? Um, wearing the crown. I don't agree, Eamon. No? No, he just has to put his head into it, Eamon, and then it's all over. You know? But, John, the expectation and the nerves... Uh, everybody, gets, everybody gets nervous, Eamon, before they get their hands yes. on silverware, Eamon. But he's already the king, Eamon. Yes, yes, that's a good point. You know, he just has to be patient, get the head onto it, and it's all over. And, of course, huge crowds expected, though, John. No, that don't don't worry about the crowds, Eamon. He's at home in Westminster. Go out there and do it. Yes. Do it. What about his age, John? No. And the question marks about no, his age. No, no. If you're, if you're good enough, you're young enough, Eamon. The last one, what was her name? I can't remember yeah. her name. I, I can't remember. Yeah. Elizabeth. Can't. Elizabeth. 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 Went on for 70 years, Eamon. Yes. 70 yes. years in the same position, Eamon. The same Yes, position. of course. Yeah, and that's for England, Eamon. For England. Okay, well, thank you, John. Yeah, um, no problem. I'll be tuning in all weekend, baby, as you know. And uh, I have a fiver on Harry to be sent off before halftime. <laughs> He's an idiot, Eamon. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Dan. Uh, and we'll have more comedy later on in the podcast um, featuring Tommy and Hector's uh, opinions on the um, coronation. You get award-winning comedy on every episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast, sometimes two or three sketches, um, which we make exclusively for you and you can't hear anywhere else. Now let's get to my, back to my chat with economist Chris Johns. I had loads more questions for Chris, starting with this one. Will Sinn Féin solve the housing problem when they get into power? Because I presume you accept that they're coming into power soon. It's certainly, I just follow the opinion polls. And if the opinion polls are accurate, they will be in power. Whether whether it's an absolute majority or in coalition, of course, we've no idea. But it does certainly look as if they're going to be involved. Do, will they solve the housing crisis? No. Why not? We pretend, and they pretend, and everybody pretends that it would only. it's really simple and it's just a question of throwing money at it. It isn't. If it was simple, you wouldn't get exactly the same housing crisis headlines that you you get here pick up a san francisco newspaper a vancouver newspaper a toronto report um there've been reports only this week from spain and portugal all using the words housing and crisis first of all it's a global phenomenon it's one of these things that's very complicated it's a problem partly of unexpected or unanticipated economic success. This country's gone very quickly from being an exporter of people to an importer of people, so its population has grown massively. It's become very wealthy very quickly in recent years in a way that people didn't expect, so people can afford to buy more houses, or at least in principle they, they, they could, they could, maybe not so much anymore. Um, interest rates have been very, very low. All of these things have combined to produce a huge explosion in demand for housing that um, is proving in all of these different places 
to be incredibly difficult to solve. I'm not saying it's impossible to solve, and I'm not saying that the government here, or indeed any other place that I mention, hasn't made big daft errors when it comes to housing. But to pretend that you can come in and wave a magic wand with some spending promises, um, I think ignores the complexity of the problem and ignores just how difficult everybody around the world who has this problem has tried to... We're not all mendacious governments in the way that perhaps our own here in Ireland is portrayed as being somehow responsible for the housing crisis, indifferent to the housing crisis, and not willing to do anything about it. It clearly is trying. You can argue that it's not trying hard enough. You can argue that it's made some dopey decisions. Absolutely. Similarly with all of those other cities and countries that I mentioned, it's phenomenally difficult to solve this problem. Good. Accepted that it's complicated and accepted about that we should have our eyes open to what's happening around the world in relation to the fact that it's... Not uh, just an Irish not problem. Just Irish price, not just indigenous, it's, exa- it's, it's it's outside as well. But just want to pick you up on one thing there you said there. Um, you said, this is, and this is something I'm interested in, the idea that even because the world I come from, comedy and satire, is, is almost by default meant to see the incumbent government as being mendacious and awful so that you can write your material. Yeah. What's the point in writing material if you like them and you think they're great? There's yeah. no material. I think you could use the word mendacious about Boris Johnson and use it accurately and with absolute certainty. That Fine. You're, but, 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 but about, you know, people use that word when it comes to Leo Varadkar. That's not right, mm. is it? No, but you said something else and that is that they clearly are trying to solve the problem. Mm. I think you also sort of intimated that they clearly are trying everything they can to solve the problem. And that's where I'd probably jump in and go, but are they really, or are, don't, don't read, but this is the problem here, Chris, isn't it? That don't don't lobby issues really, really jump in to stymie this problem. That you're going, we're trying everything, but really, are you? When the lads are having a quick word with you on the side going, we can't allow you to do that. In my defence, Your Honour, I didn't say that we were trying everything that we could do. I would be the first to criticise, first of all, the slowness with which the coalition have come to the realise just how big a, a problem the housing thing is. If only from a political perspective, how many... The surprising thing for me is how long it's taken them to realise how many votes it's going to cost them. Um, You'd have thought that as self-interested politicians, they'd have copped a long time ago that the only conversation here in Dublin for the last few years has been the fact that our kids can't afford anywhere to live. Um, That it's taken it so long for that penny to drop is a surprise. You mentioned vested interests. One of the reasons why we have, despite efforts, maybe not as much effort as they should have done, everywhere, not just in Ireland, is confronting vested interests. And that's a general point about economic policy, about policy generally, actually, is that confronting vested interests requires enormous effort, enormous skill, and the enormous expending of political capital, because you're going to have to take on an awful lot of uh, people who are very, very powerful. Um, you, you know, in this country, you should imagine taking on the law library. Yeah. You know, you've got to do that. Mm-hmm. And, how, and how much energy, political capital, time, and you can't do everything. That's the other thing, is that you've always got to pick your battles, any government, any, if you run a family, if you, if you run a business, if you run a government, you can't do everything. You have to choose what your priorities are going to be. If you tackle the health service, the vested interests in the health service, from doctors and consultants all the way down to the porters, there are vested interests that run through all of these organisations yeah. that have all sorts of power structures, yeah. some visible, some invisible, that you're going to have to take on. And it takes time, effort, energy and political capital. Can I use a word that I like? Because I like the odd word as well. Because the problem is it's sclerotic. Yeah. I enjoy that word. 
means just uh, slow moving and it's clogged up, I think, doesn't it? It does. It does. <laughs> and the one thing that you have to confront is that um, when you try to change anything, if you try to change anything, try to change the behavior of your kids, try to change the behavior of your business partners, try to change the behavior of the civil service, of the, the consultants, the lawyers. Um, what do people always say? They always say, this is one of the great human lies that people tell themselves, is that I embrace change, bring it on. Absolute BS. Mm. We're hardwired to resist change and the, the, the structures throughout sclerotic organizations there to prevent change from happening. And one of the things any government of any colour has to do if it wants to introduce big changes, whether it's to housing, health, education, our infrastructure, is they have to introduce effective and meaningful and sustainable change. And don't underestimate just how phenomenally difficult that actually is. There's no magic wand. Another call on the line. Sorry. Sorry, I have to interrupt you. Another call. It's Finton O'Toole. Say hi. Hi, Finton. Nice to hear from you. Hi, it's good to talk to you, Chris. And I must say, I was enjoying the conversation until you mentioned my writing, which I think as one of the leading intellectuals in this country, I take grave exception to and objection to. I noticed in your substack, you said that these, um, this article would have taken me two minutes to write. Is that correct? I did say that, Finton. Well, it actually took me four and a half minutes, so you uh, were wrong. You have my apologies. And I'm afraid I would like uh, you to take that back. I retract that. I stand corrected. And also, um, okay, so um, you accept that I'm one of the greatest minds? Um, I wouldn't necessarily agree with you there, Finton, but I'm prepared to... One of the top five? One of the top ten, maybe. Great, so I'll make the top ten in Chris John's greatest minds of all time? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. That's great. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye, Finton. That's wonderful. God, he's a tough man, though. Uh, he was on my podcast as well. He's brilliant. He's very, very clever, yeah, erudite yeah, man. Yeah. Absolutely. It's funny that you say that, though. So that you would have that you would feel that, for example, about him that he's a very funny, erudite man, but that could be so down, so could be so miserably wrong about something. Well, I think he falls into that trap, which, of course, any columnist trying to write in eight hundred words is inevitably going to do, yeah. of simplifying very complex things and yeah. saying that you know the solution. To a, I'm not denying the scale of the problem. I'm not just denying the existence of the problem. But what I'm saying is that when people like Finton write those articles, about, which he correctly identifies the problem, is that there isn't a recognition of how incredibly difficult any solution is going to be. And, and the chances of success, certainly short-term success, are very low. Okay. What's going to happen to Sinn Féin when everybody discovers what you've just said is going to happen, that they can't figure out the housing problem? Surely somebody has said to Sinn Féin, guys, it isn't as, as easy as you think. It's much more complicated. And if we put all our cards into the housing basket and then we don't solve it, we're going to get fucked out quicker than the lads were kicked out. Isn't that not possible, Chris? It's certainly possible. I think it is a good question. Um, but if you think about their position in the North... They have done sweet FA for the North's economy. If, arguably, they've driven it backwards. When I first came to Ireland, if you, if you went from the Republic to the North, not many people did back then. Um, I remember going to Belfast, not long after I arrived, uh, just out of curiosity, mm. in 1988, going to Belfast for the weekend, returning to the office on Monday morning. People did the what, what you do for the weekend type thing. And I said, oh, I went to Belfast. And there was silence. And what in the name of God did you do that for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was it was like going from a. Th I'm exaggerating to make a point here. It was like going from here to there, from a third world to a first world country. 
Well, that's flipped. That's right. That's flipped. And that's partly as a consequence of the reigning parties in power up there. And that's been for a while in coalition Sinn Féin. The northern economy has gone backwards. That, incidentally, is one of the problems that's faced the UK, is that once you take your eye off the economic ball when it comes to policy. So in Scotland, you've had them pursuing the national question and caravans, apparently. Um, in Wales, I'm not quite sure what their priorities are apart from the Welsh language. In England, it's been Brexit. So in all of the regions of the UK, you've had parties pursuing things other than economics. You've had parties prioritising things other than economics. What I think the risk that you run when you elect Sinn Féin next time is that the same thing will happen here, is that you've been running this place now, the Republic, for years for the economy. They can argue about how, and we do argue about where that has failed and the problems that have been thrown up. Because housing, in a way, is a problem of economic success. You can think about it like that. Um, how we share the spoils of economic success. But we haven't taken our ball, eye off the ball in the Republic. On the, the economy has been front and centre of every policy initiative in recent years. If Sinn Féin come to power, they are explicit. Their policy priority is unification. And so they will take their eye off the economic ball. And I think that the economy will suffer as a result, or there is a risk that it will suffer as a result. I see the plan, yes. I see what you're saying. So you're saying the housing problem is a, is in, is a consequence of economic success. Sinn Féin will come into power. Generate economic failure. Generate economic failure, and we will solve the housing problem. Brilliant, Yay! isn't it? Isn't it brilliant? This is Blind Boy. You're listening to the Mario Rosenstock podcast. <laughs> Winner of Top Comedy Podcast of the Year 2022. Now, before we go back to Chris, more podcasters were intrigued with the coronation of King Charles this weekend, including Tommy and Hector. No, 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 but... Jesus, Tommy! No, but the King, King Charles, King Charles. <laughs> would, will you be tuning in? Will you be, oh. will, will you be tuning in to King Charles, Hector? Fan no me, Tommy. Do you know... Would you like to be King Tommy? King uh, Tommy? King, King, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that crown might make me head. Um, your, your head would get fierce big, wouldn't it? I didn't think your head I could do- get any bigger, Tommy, in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> no, do you know, I would oh, love to be king. I would. Of England? No, no, I would love to be king of a small village in Ireland. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know, Boris and Ossery. Boris and Ossery. Or Celtic. Yeah, or Ula. The Ula. king of Ula. Ula town. Or, do you know that one, um... Outside Limerick, is it Effin? Effin. Effin Athletic. Effin. Or Fanny's Town. Fanny's Town. Fanny's Town. Fanny's Town United. Now, ladies and gentlemen. Or the horse and jockey. Ah, the ah, horse and jockey. That'd be great to be king of the horse and jockey. Imagine Jesus. that. Ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Um, plebs. Everybody. Um, ah, introducing His Highness, ah, the king of the horse and jockey. Ah, jockey and ruler ah, of all the Commonwealth. Ah, king Thomas ah, of Tubber Curry. And Curry. Newtown fucking Potter. <laughs> Here it be Jesus, tis Michael Flatley here. You're listening to the Mario Rosenstock Podcast, Top Comedy Podcast of the Year at the Irish Podcast Award. Me arse. Pogue Mahone. More comedy on the Mario Rosenstock Podcast, exclusive comedy every week. Now back to the podcast. Okay, next economic question. This is a bit flippant. The UK currently owes $2.53 trillion in national debt. The United States, the last time I looked, owed something close to 30 trillion in national debt. Who cares? Um, very, very few people. You will care in the United States if they do something really dumb over the next couple of months because there's a 
particular thing that could hit the headlines. They have a very strange law in the state the called, called the debt ceiling. And if they want to borrow any money above this maximum limit preset by Congress, it's really peculiar. They're the only country in the world that do it. It's really stupid. Um, and it was designed to try and keep government debt in check. It's a bad, bad idea when it first came into being decades ago. And every now and again, they go through this, these shenanigans whereby Congress says, we're not going to put the debt ceiling up. And that means that the federal government has to shut down because it can't borrow any more money to run yeah. itself. This, this time around, it could be really serious because the Republican Party are playing real hardball. They have a, um, a real nutcase in charge of Congress at the moment. And they're demanding all sorts of things of Joe Biden. He's not going to deliver. And it is possible that the U.S. could default on its debt because in order to pay back some of the debt that it already owes, it has to borrow money to do so. Mm. Borrowed money replaces borrowed money. Yeah, I've heard this. If it defaults, that's another global economic crisis. Or, or, or a world war. Well, maybe to deflect our attention from that, yeah. But I don't see why, how it would lead to a, a war. Well, because if the toughest guy in the room owes you the money and he doesn't feel like paying it, doesn't he just beat the shit out of you? Well, they owe an awful lot of the money to places like China, for example. So if they don't pay the Chinese back, I can see the Chinese getting very upset about really, that. Yeah. And what if you just but, tell the Chinese to piss off? Well, that's what a default is. Mm. And what's, who's going to do anything about it if it's America? Well, the, exact, well, you could argue that the Chinese might get a bit upset about Who it. Who cares? Mm. They might do something strange, like invade Taiwan as a sort of a quid pro quo. Yeah. Because um, the Americans won't be able to borrow any money yeah. to fund. Sorry, it. I was I was being deliberately. I know because I know. But no, because it's it is a question that I actually am trying to get to. It's like it's a thing that Tommy Tiernan I think raised before as well. He did a very good um, little piece about it. It goes, everybody owes money to everybody else. So why don't we just kill the guy at the end of the line, and then that the whole problem is solved. It's a bit drastic. Um, what will actually happen if the US government defaults is that you remember that the financial crisis was caused by a few banks threatening to go bust, right? And that meant that all our economies ultimately went into recession and we had to have bailouts and all that stuff. If the US government defaults on its debt, it will be that writ, lar writ large. Mm. I don't think it'll be a war, but it could well mm. be something very, very nasty. Betting is that it won't happen, yeah. but the risk is rising. Yeah, but it, at least this other thing that it comes back to econo economists as well and economies. Do you know this word confidence? It's related to what I said about the markets. So confidence is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If there's a lack of confidence, it can lead to a fall, like a house of cards. So that means when people talk about it, they go, how is it? How is it? Oh, it's very good. In fact, it might be better than good. It's looking really, really good. So it's really shit, is it? No, no, no. It's far from shit. It's looking really, really good. So the reality is that it's shit, but you can't say it's shit because if you say it's shit, then it will get shitter. We saw that during the recent shenanigans over a few banks failing in the States and in Switzerland. Everybody came out of the woodwork, all the usual suspects to say it's isolated. It's yeah. a one-off. But it's, it's not the truth, though. No, it's not. Yeah, so we're living constantly in a tissue of lies. From a, a, a very narrow financial perspective, mm. from a banking perspective, mm. you're absolutely right because banking is just, lying. It's just a big con job. Yes, because you, we all know, yeah. at least I hope we do, that mm. if we all turn up at our banks tomorrow and ask for our money from our bank deposits, it's, run. it's not there. No. And, uh, because they've lent it all out. They've lent it all Much out. Much more than we have. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And this leads me to another question, and this is, being, this is, this is against something that I hold as a, as a kind of a gripe in my head and, and it's not against you personally by any means Chris and again thank you very much for coming on the podcast and I'm really enjoying your, your contribution as usual um, is this 
Yeah, this 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 shit you hear. Sorry again about the, the use of the language, but it's this stuff you hear about. Um, so the the story normally goes: bankers have asked for bonuses to be brought back, and you go, "Why would bankers want bonuses back?" The banking federation is complaining that they can't get the talent necessary at the kind of wages that they're being given now. What kind of wages? Well, they have a ceiling of five or six hundred grand a year. They say that's too low. They say bankers should be able to be paid real money because that's where you get the talent. My question is, Chris, how much talent does it take to mind somebody's money and put it in a safe and fucking lend the rest of it out? Not much. And banking should be like the the sewage system, something that we just assume is there uh, working and never... if it causes a problem, it's messy, but it's it's just something that's there. It's like it should be like a public utility, and it. There's Don't you no, think th- it's an insult to people's intelligence when people go on about paying bankers it, one, two, it's three one million? It's one of the way. It's one of the ways in which the system is rigged. Um, that there is no justification for ordinary mainstream high street bankers to be multimillionaires. Absolutely not. There's, there's, you can, you can try, and they do, but there isn't any justification for it whatsoever. An engineer who builds a bridge and earns 150,000 a year maybe a uh, uh, an, an an english uh, professor in university who teaches advanced emotional and literary concepts to generations of students on 90 100 grand a year but a person who takes your money gives it to other people on 3 4 million a year let's just isn't it what isn't that what it is chris absolutely i do not disagree with you at all and as i say that is one of the way in which the system is rigged and uh one of the things i don't understand is how we've allowed this to continue happening for centuries now because even you, you can go back to the 18th and 19th centuries and see that bankers were paid just like this back then and we've never ever done anything about it all right, I'm going to I'm going to come to the last um, point to you next. You have so many aspects to your uh, learning and your um, life that you've spent time writing about and thinking about. And one of the things that you've really touched upon recently, which um, has interested you, and to much to your surprise, has interested very few other people, is the concept of AI, artificial intelligence. Um, when you say AI in this country, it used to it used to mean artificial insemination um, years ago. But we've come a long way since then and uh, since the days of of, of our rural uh, backdrop. So now it's artificial intelligence and chat GBT, etc. I, I, we could talk about this all day, but I'll actually try and put my question um, to you in a very simple way. There's been a recent study that posited that the world AI could reduce the world population to 5,000. How would it do that in its in this study? There's lots of different ways in which th- that could happen. That particular study was as a result, I think it was of a United Nations exercise, actually, of asking um, one of these systems, not ChatGPT, but something else, to de-acidify the world's oceans, to sort out the, the acid problem in the oceans. And it did that via doing something to... It, in theory, would do that via doing something to our atmosphere that would mean that we would all suffocate. Right, our... If you ask ChatGBT, cure cancer, it kills everybody in the world. Make sure that we don't get cancer. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and ChatGBT cannot do this because it's not actually connected to anything that, that can. These are some of the more lurid examples of what the, what AI poses as a threat. The more real 
uh, or at least shorter term threats, because it's quite possible that any or all of those existential things could come into being eventually, um, if you want to sort of be a science fiction fantasist. Um, but the concerns over the AI systems as they are now are going to be over things like privacy, scamming, uh, fakes, deep fakes. That's that. All of that is just going to get worse. If you could, there are systems in existence now that if you say to it, create a record that sounds like Harry Styles, uh, it'll do it for you. Yeah. And Spotify are having to move to try and head off these sorts of things. Um, the the. the scams that we all face with you know banking and people trying to steal our identity that's going to get very difficult um as i say privacy is going to be an issue because we're going to be handing even more of our data over to these people the biggest problem for, i'm actually on the optimistic side of what it will do in terms of helping economies to grow and uh, all of us to be better at what we do i i i have an optimistic take on that for all sorts of reasons. The thing that worries me the most goes back to that discussion of inequality that you and I had just now, is that all of the technological change pre-AI, all of that stuff, the gains have gone to vanishingly few people. There are a few billionaires at the top of all of these different companies that we can all name, and the rest of us, we happily use these devices and these tools, um, but we haven't shared in the monetary gains from them. And uh, an awful lot of people have lost their more traditional jobs as a result of this technological progress. I worry that AI is going to put all that on steroids, that there will be lots of money made from AI, lots of economic gains. We will be a much more productive society than we were before. We're going to be doing things much more efficiently, much more quickly. All of those things, I think, are going to be true. But who's going to benefit? If there's not policy intervention, if governments don't get interventionist about this, then we're just going to get more Jeff Bezos's of this world um, reaping all the gains. And, um, yeah, you know, people like Elon Musk will have the money to devise rockets that blow up trying to get to Mars. But the likes of you and me, Mario, we're not going to benefit from this unless somebody thinks this things th thinks all of this through and devises a set of rules and regulations that, yeah, deals with all the stuff about privacy and scamming and all that other stuff, but who's going to benefit from this? Mm. That's the big question. And I worry that the, the starting point of our economies, of our societies, that we have described in this discussion is just wrong in the sense that we don't have a Scandinavian sharing culture and AI is just going to exaggerate, is going to put all of that on exponential mm. growth towards even fewer winners take all. One of the things I think we should uh, push back against is the populism simplification of these problems that you alluded to earlier on. Try and push back by it by getting people to try and send out a message or describe a message even in more simple terms about how complex some of these problems are to, 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 to inject into our culture the notion that some of these issues are very complex and that we should try to accept that they're complex and that they're not easy. Because I think there is a premise at the moment, a bar, that people go, it's easy, just sort it out. Throw the fucking Molotov cocktail in, get Trump in and get him out. And that's kind of a mistake. And if we could possibly spread a um, an idea that that if you want to look at these problems, let's try and set up a situation where we do look at attempt to even admit that they're complex. Because even by getting to that stage, to admit it would be a start, rather than seeing them as simple. Mm. And I mean? also seeing how everything is connected to everything else. 
and that uh, if you want to solve the housing problem, you're going to have to do a whole host of things. There's no one button mm. or lever that to push or mm. pull. Um, you're going to have to do things like um, allow all the refugees to work. That might help you solve some of the problems that the construction industry has in getting people to actually work on sites. Mm. More generally, you're going to have to figure out how to get more people into those trades, into those jobs, either by retraining Irish uh, residents mm -hmm. or bringing in more immigrants. And you're going to have to accept more immigration mm -hmm. if you are going to build more houses. You're going to have to have fundamental reform of the planning system because one of the big contributors to our housing crisis in many countries has been a sclerotic, your word, planning system. Dublin is ridiculous. It's so flat. It's so sprawling. Dublin, it's ridiculous that you don't have an underground. It's the only capital city in the, the modern world, I think, that doesn't have an underground railway system. Uh, and so on and so on. I could start listing all of the things that you have to do and accept that there are policy trade-offs and that in order to get the housing crisis solved, you're going to have to do something over there that A, you didn't expect to have to do and B, you may not like. Yeah, okay. Um, just coming to the end, but um, a, uh, I had to think about AI myself just briefly. Not, I'm nowhere near as thought of it as much as you, but one of the things that AI does is, 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 is it essentially attempts to mimic humans. And I was thinking, well, if it mimics humans so successfully, why would we be afraid of AI? Because your average human is of such a kind of standard, right, that AI... Um, will just be kind of, if AI really mimics humans, it'll really just end up as a kind of a lazy, flat blob on a couch eating Pringles all day and uh, bitching about somebody else. It won't be really that much of a threat. That's it'll a, just be watching the snooker. That's a particular view of humanity that you might want to take. Um, I wouldn't be that worried by AI, you know? Well, AI is going to kill us all. No, he's just going to be eating Pringles watching snooker. Well, that's kind of saying, well, there isn't much intelligence around it to start with. And if you get artificial intelligence, that's an improvement. Right. Okay, well, I've, do you know what I've done? on this podcast I've generated artificial intelligence on the line is an artificially created Pascal Donoghue Minister for Finance former Minister well Minister for Public Expenditure say hello to him Hello Pascal nice to speak to you again Yes good afternoon to you Chris and it's absolutely wonderful to hear your erudite and completely non-sclerotic discussion see the way I picked up on that Well done well I'm done, mimicking Pascal. a human being namely Chris Johns now, Chris, I have a question for you as an AI robot. Um, may I put it to you um, as an economist? Let's say I have an 18 billion euro budget surplus. Would you put that money away for a rainy day fund? Or would you spend that on 100 million packets of Maltesers and 50 million golly bars? That's a tough one, Pascal. I think um, what he's asking is, um, I think I know what he's saying. He's asking... The government have a lot of money, I think. You'd accept that. Yep, absolutely. Um, what would you do with the money? I'd save a lot of it, and I would have the discussion, the open discussion that I alluded to earlier on, is about saying, okay, we will decide that housing is our policy priority. And if we're going to decide that housing is our policy priority, this is the amount of money that we're going to spend on it. We're not going to spend any more than this, um, because... All sorts of things will flow. Money isn't the only thing that will solve the housing problem. One of the things that just throwing money at housing will do is just inflate housing costs. Um, but we are going to prioritise it. But I think that because there's such a short window between now and the election, the idea that you can throw, up, throw enough money to solve the housing crisis by the next election is nuts. Yeah, but what about building something like a metro? What about investing in your country? Yeah, 
if you if you think that you have the state capacity, that's and that's a whole new can of worms. Does the state have the capacity to handle something like that, to build something like that? Mm. Then investing in yourself is one of the absolute best ways of using that money. So whether it's saved or spent wisely, I don't think really matters. It's answering the question: Do we know? as a state, as a country, how to spend money wisely? And if the answer to that question is yes, then build that metro. Chris, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Sorry, I sounded a bit like Jim Power when I said that. Um, um, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm a big admirer of your contributions on everything um, you do, the Substack and the Stand and the other hand, continued success for you. Thank you, Mario. It's been great. And my thanks to Chris Johns for um, that wonderful conversation, which we spread out over two weeks. Um, If you want to contact me, of course, it's mariarosenstock at gmail.com. Any suggestions, compliments, always taken. Um, Constructive criticism, much appreciated. Uh, And make sure you check out Chris's other podcast as well, um, The Other Hand, it's called, uh, and his regular appearances on The Stand. Thanks to you for listening. See you same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.